0: Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin will
1: have you seeing double. Meanwhile, Bob Hoskins has to solve a mystery with some animated friends. Coming up next on Out of Touchdown. Another song that I feel is quite synonymous with the 1980s, that of course is Higher Love by Steve Winwood. a song that I always really enjoyed. Um, I remember in the mid-80s, he just kind of, he came on the scene, even though he'd been around for many, many years and years. I'd like to ask my co-host across the table, Chad Smart, do you remember the emergence of Steve Winwood in the mid-80s?
0: I I do remember that emergence. I did not know that he had been playing in traffic, I believe, for a long time, and then finally escaped and went on to have a solo career.
1: Yeah, I know. It's, it's funny. I, I, we, can, we can go on and on about this topic, but I feel like the 1980s brought out a lot of... Artists who were popular in the 60s and 70s and they had to redefine themselves mm-hmm. as pop stars when the music video revolution came. And so that was just one of those songs. We'll go into that a little bit more as we discuss our first movie. But as I mentioned, this is out of Touchstone. Myself, Mike DeKalb, Chad Smart across the table. We are now into the summer of 1988. We, we've mentioned how an, uh, touchstone had a great 1987, and now they're rolling along, and we've got two really popular movies to talk about, and so I guess we'll just get going with the first one. Uh, it was released on June 10th, 1988, and it's a comedy called Big Business. Touchstone Pictures presents two Bed Midlers And two Lily Tomlins. I am not a twit. There are two sets of twins who were mixed up at birth. That happened to me once. Two sets of twins who finally meet their match. You're not my sister. And you're not my sister. How do you know? It's the comedy where two's company... And four is a riot. As long as you keep him bound and gag. Big business. Rated BG. As I mentioned, released in the summer of 1988, a big business was written by Dory Pearson and Mark Reed Rubel. Uh, Dory Pearson was married to Frank Pearson. I don't know about you, Chad. I remember Frank Pearson because he was the president of the academy and he would always come out during the Oscar ceremony just to be like, hey everybody. This is the Academy Awards. Do you, do you remember those or no?
0: I, I mean, I remember those, but the only ones that I remember is Arthur Hiller. He's the only former president that I can name, which I believe we discussed a few episodes back.
1: Director of Outrageous Fortune, yes. Uh, Frank Pearson, of course, had written um, A Star is Born, the 1976 uh, Barbara Streisand version. he written Dog the Afternoon. He also wrote a movie called Cat Baloo that my wife is a huge fan of. Mm-hmm. Um, Dory Pearson, they were divorced. She's now married to the X-Files creator Chris Carter, uh, Interesting little factoid. She had three prior credits, which were all TV movies, and they were co-written with Mark Reed Rubel. The two of them are actually first cousins. Um, they were the last product project that they had was 1986's TV movie called Prince of Bel Air which starred Mark Harmon. Interesting enough, it also starred Kirstie Alley and Dean Cameron and Patrick Labordeau, I Leberto? think, who all went on to do summer school like the next year.
0: Oh, I almost watched that the other night in preparation of this episode, and I just have to ask, too, I don't know if you looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes, but is it considered fresh?
1: This is a story all about how I like, okay, came to <laughs> Bel Air, a fresh print... <laughs> Uh, okay, Mark Reed Rubel. he had two feature credits. In addition to all the TV movies that he had done with Dory Pearson, he had two feature credits to his name. 1978 movie called Almost Summer, and a wonderful film from 1980 yeah. called Xanadu. Can we just talk for like 20 minutes about Xanadu? We could. I, I, I have a very fond, uh, fond spot in my heart for that movie. Um, the director of Big Business, a name we have probably heard before on this show, is Jim Abrams. Of course, he had worked with Jerry and David Zucker, and they'd done Airplane Top Secret. And in 1986, they directed the Touchdown movie Ruthless People.
0: Yeah, and one thing that I'll interject real quick. In research, uh, one thing that surprised me in looking up Jim Abrams' career, he only has 11 credits. Really? I would I thought he had done a lot more, but it's the movies you mentioned and then I believe the Naked Gun movies he wrote mm-hmm. and a couple of the scary movies I mean
1: I wonder did they make enough money off of Airplane movies like and Airplane Nicky, and whatnot yeah. that they just kind of rested on their laurels and didn't have to it maybe didn't do much more um, our stars, here's that name again Bette Midler this was now her fourth consecutive film for Touchstone uh, for those keeping score at home, it's a down and out in Beverly Hills, ruthless people, and outrageous fortune all came before this. In 1987, she signed a three-picture deal, and at the time, no other actor had had a contract with Disney. It's interesting. I went on YouTube. I went on YouTube, and there's a video. It's like a little one of those Entertainment Tonight kind of specials, and it's Jeffrey Katzenberg and Bette Midler sitting and doing a press conference about the signing of the oh. three-picture deal. Like,
0: now, no one had had a contract with Disney at all, or just at this time.
1: Uh, what I had heard was that no other actor had had a contract with Disney. Okay. And I don't know if that means, I think it means ever, the okay. way I understood I was just curious because yeah. I
0: know Kurt Russell did a lot of teenage movies when he was a teenager. Yeah. Computer wore tennis shoes, other movies that don't come to mind right now. But he had done a lot of Disney films. I didn't sure. know if he was contracted or if they just liked him and got tired. Yeah,
1: maybe. And is that free te- teenage labor or whatever? No, I'm, I don't know. Um, and, of course, the co-star is, is Lily Tomlin, who, just like Bette Miller, she had a varied career, which included a lot of TV shows, variety specials, uh, stand-up. She got an Oscar nomination for the Robert Altman film uh, Nashville in 1975. Um, her career in the 80s consisted of of 9 to 5, The Incredible Shrinking Woman, and All of Me, which I think we discussed before, because that came out around the same time as it was either Splash or Country.
0: Yeah, and I think we also discussed how we would rather have watched that movie instead of a specific touchstone film that i will not mention
1: <laughs> um lily tomlin uh starred in, and won a, started won a tony award for her one woman stage play the search for signs of intelligent life in the universe written by her wife jane wagner and that was because i noticed there was like a gap in her film career after all of me and big business there's a four-year gap and it was because she was doing broadway at the time one one last uh crew member i noticed was Dean Cundey, and it's a name I recognize because he worked a lot with Robert Zemeckis. And he had, been, he, was in, he had started in the 70s, mid-70s, so he was at least 15 years into his career. He had dozens of film credits. He worked with John Carpenter in the late 70s and early 80s. He'd done Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, The Thing. And then he started working with Robert Zemeckis in 1984 with the movie Romancing the Stone. Then he does the Back to the Future trilogy, and he also does our next film, roger rabbit but it's interesting to discuss because in big business and in back to the future 2 which comes out a year later you see i believe it's called the VistaGlide system which allows them to film the same scene with two with the same actor playing two different roles and it's maybe it was something it was like oh dean cundey knows that technology mm-hmm. so it kind of worked out for them um the script i mean i guess it's loosely based? I was going to ask you, they they mentioned it's based on the Comedy of Errors by William Shakespeare. I have not read that play. I read the plot synopsis, and it doesn't sound like it's loosely based. It sounds really close to it. Chad, you said you started to read it, or
0: what? I read two acts of Comedy of Errors, and then realized that I don't understand Shakespeare, and I think Shakespeare is a lot better understood when it's heard, rather than listen than read. Mm -hmm. And so I did find that uh, if you go on Amazon Prime, not a sponsor of our show, but on the Amazon Prime video, they have a BBC version. Apparently the BBC spent like from 1978 to 1985, I think, they did a bunch of Shakespearean works. They did a version of Comedy of Errors with Roger Daltrey in one of the roles. Nice. And yeah, it's basically uh, two sets of twins that are lost at sea, separated by sea, Mm-hmm. They grow up, One's, one, the older twin is the, uh, I don't know what the proper term is, but but the younger twin is the servant to the older twin,
1: oh, Okay. basically.
0: Very brief synopsis, but yes. And then it's, they're both in the same town, one has lived there, the other one is just coming into town to visit, and of course, madcap comedy ensues yeah. with mistaken identity.
1: Well, it's so funny you said you're not overly familiar with Shakespeare, but I, I think I joked with you before. Uh, a lot of shipwrecks in Shakespeare comedies and Shakespeare plays. It yes. just makes it easier for people to get confused, and then oh, what happens now? And then it turns into uh, the, what you said—the madcap comedy. Um, okay, so as far as the movie itself, I, I what I thought was interesting was the the whole opening scene. It's Quite lengthy. I mean, it goes into the specifics about how this couple—I think they're from like New York, right—and they come. They're coming through West Virginia, and the wife gets pregnant, and then someone else gets pregnant. They both have twins, and then it gets mixed up at the hospital. But they really take their time setting up that opening scene.
0: Well, and I watched this movie twice before we recorded because I wanted to go back and catch a few things that I'd missed the first time. And it, when the rich family from New York, when the wife goes into labor, and they like, oh, we need to find a hospital. One of the people that they stop and ask, who is actually the husband of the other woman that goes into labor, he's like, "Oh, there's this hospital down here," and they're like, "Fine, great," and they take off. He's like, "But you're not going to get in because that's only for the employees of this company," and so Mm. that's when they go in and they won't take them, and then they leave, and that's where, if I correctly understand it, the business guy ends up buying the company
1: just so they can use the hospital. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean again like. I, you always assume, with, especially with the comedies like the the Zucker's do, there's not like this elaborate setup, but they really take their time to kind of. I, th- I thought it was incredibly necessary. It just mm-hmm. it goes on a little bit because you're like, okay, what's going on? Like we we really take their time with with setting up the mixed identities with the with the twins. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, it's 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 got a slow pace to it, but it does seem quite important. Um, although it does, okay. Once the movie gets going, my, one of my complaints is that it's got has very broad depictions. Of of southern life and even city life, like you're supposed to understand that like that. Oh, they're bumpkins. The people, you know, when you see the grown up versions of them in there, they're just like this. They're one, I think there's like a scene where there's there's a guy wrestling a pig in the mud, and then you know you, where you see the Bette Midler character from the, the country version of Bette Midler, who's just like, oh, I want to get out of here, and you know, and then the city life is just like the uh, hustle, 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 yeah. you know, which. I don't know. It, it's it's Like I said, it seems kind of broad, and it makes me wonder. Whenever I see stuff like that, I always wonder, has the writer ever experienced either of these? Or are they just going off of, of what we think city life is like or what we think country life is like? Because you and I, you know, I think when, I, when, I, when I watched watch with my wife, she was joking about, oh, you're getting homesick watching those country scenes. And I'm like, okay, Chad and I are from small podang towns in Illinois, but we didn't wrestle pigs in the mud or anything like that.
0: Uh, no, we did not. Not at all. Absolutely
1: not. <laughs> so you've been led to believe um but then but so as i said it's broad depictions and so what ends up happening is that you have a lot of one-note characters and okay for lack of a better we know the characters are called rosie rose and sadie right i think it's just easier to call them bet and lily just because there's two of them so we well for the rest of this conversation we will refer to country bet city bet country lily city lily and so you got four of them and i feel like the 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 city bet character and the country lily character are just incredibly one dimensional. Like the city bet version is just oh, I want to just I want to get the money and get out of this town. And then the country lily is like I got to save this town. And those and those city folks are 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 snakes and stuff like that. Yeah, and
0: that's part of the reason why I went back and watched it again because I didn't feel like I felt the difference between, or I should say, the similarities between city lily and and country lily were both kind of homegrown or down-home folk, Mm -hmm. if you will. But I didn't get that the first time through, the country, but I didn't get her real longing to not be in the country and wanting to be in the city. Mm. And on a second view, it did show up a little bit more, but I think I was paying more attention to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, yeah, these are very, again, you're dealing with the creator of, you know, Airplane, and it's farcical, it's broad, it's not... You know, making you think too much, but it, it works for the for the story being told.
1: Yeah, like I said, the the depth really comes from I yeah. think the city Lily, who longs for like a simpler yeah. kind of life, and then the country Bet. I think has a lot of depth because, like I said, she she longs to go to the big city. Uh-huh.
0: How can you say this is a way of life not much worth preserving? Just look at this. How can you not just love this place? Oh God, Rose, I wish I knew. I. I feel like the real me is all cooped up inside, you know? And I want so many things. I want designer clothes.
1: I want to see the world. I want a penthouse in the sky and a maid to pick up after me. I want to say things like, keep the change. God, sometimes I get so bored.
0: I find myself just praying for a UFO sighting. I'd stand here and I'd say, come and get me. Come and get
1: me. And to the, to the screenwriter's credit, I will say, I, I really did enjoy how they... They delayed the meeting of the four sisters, I think you mentioned I was expecting that to happen them to kind of encounter each other more towards like the end of the second act. It doesn't happen until there's about ten minutes left in the movie,
0: and, and then th- counting credits.:
1: yeah, yeah, and they have a, a, this opportunity where every single supporting character in the movie. Bumps into both of them and has to experience the, the awkwardness of, wait, didn't I just see you? And so they kind of prolong that as long yeah. as they could.
0: Yeah, and one of those supporting characters, let's, I'm going to throw it in real quick because I don't know who plays Bet Midler, City Bet's ex husband. I didn't recognize him.
1: City Bet's ex husband? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I know who you're talking about. It's Seth, their their child is Seth, Seth Green, Green from Can't Buy Me Love. Exactly. I want to throw that in there, a little touchstone throwback. Touchstone's repertory. they got yeah. bringing Seth Green back. Yeah. Um, and then and that, uh, uh, yeah
0: I well I'll say that for when we get into thoughts of the movie go ahead
1: well what's funny too is you talk about the supporting characters I did not realize this but Mary Gross plays one of the employees at the the City Bet and City Lily's company was it Moramax I think is what Mor- it's called um, and then Michael Gross plays is it city Lily's wannabe boyfriend suitor yeah. and you know dad from he's a dad from family ties mary gross used to be on saturday night live i did not realize they are brother and sister in real life I, you know it just i thought it was just a it's a common name i guess but who know? they put them together um as we mentioned you know they they've done a good job with delaying the meeting of the of the the, the two sisters the four sisters i should say but there are definitely a lot of plot conveniences to keep the confusion going. I thought you – and know, a lot of scenes with characters using vague dialogue, you know, where that, it's just like, oh, we're looking for this person. And, and, like, there's a scene with Fred Ward, and he's trying to romance City Lily. He thinks it's Country Lily, and they say, oh, we're looking for this character, the person with – and, you know, this, with, Fox, I think this mentions the last Radcl- name. Radcliffe, Radcliffe. Radcliffe. And he just goes, well, you're standing right in front of one of them. And you're like, okay, who says that, right?
0: Okay, that that is my biggest problem with this film is – it's what I call the lost syndrome where people don't talk. Mm -hmm. It's all this could have been cleared up very quickly. And I mean, the whole premise that, uh, city bet and city lily are supposed to be selling off the, the small town to this Italian businessman. Mm -hmm. And they go to, to the airport to pick him up. There's confusion there. He leaves with country folk who have come up to try to stop the sale. And then Country folk take over the hotel suite that I don't that the city people were going to take. City and City Lily, and I'm like, why are they at this hotel too when they live in New York? I,
1: yeah, I I, did, I wonder if I missed something because I I was thinking. Well, the if same you did. Thing. I missed it twice. Yeah, because I was thinking the same thing. Why are they staying? Unless they just want to be closer to this businessman yeah. to try to make the deal happen. I don't know. And then, of course, the country folks are just like, oh. This must be the company trying to wine and dine us to get us yeah. to go away or something. So it's a, yeah, a lot like I said, a lot of plot conveniences to keep things moving along. And like and, and unfortunately then it becomes it becomes somewhat convoluted, which makes me a little nervous about reading comedy of errors, especially when you throw the Shakespearean dialogue in it. Yeah. I'm wondering how I'm gonna if I if I read that book I'm probably gonna have to have a little flow chart next to me and I mean, try, it, th- it, take notes. And I think
0: that's part of why I stopped reading and tried to find a a stage for or a you know, film version of it because the yeah. names are the exact same, only it's like Dianos of Arendamis and Dianos of... Syracuse, Cusa. right? is yeah. Syracuse? <laughs> and it's like, okay, which... what? Yeah, does it, it doesn't read well, but it plays out well.
1: Yeah. And I think that kind of translates over to big business because some of the jokes are a little bit difficult to follow. They're even ridiculous. I mean, there's a whole... There's so a whole scene with, like, a miniature golf tournament with Chick Hearn, the, the former Laker broadcaster, doing play-by-play. It's supposed to be on ESPN, and i just like, what is this doing in the movie?
0: Well, I mean, that's the character of Fred Ward.
1: Fred Ward, yeah.
0: It took me back—I don't know if you ever saw, but I know in the mid-'90s, I believe it was, I would see miniature golf comp- televised competitions on the weekends. It would, sure. It would be, like, an hour-long show. I mean, it wasn't on ESPN. It was on just local, you know, stations, but— apparently that's that is a thing
1: it's just a but it's just a weird scene in the middle of that movie and yeah. it's how Fred Ward finds out that that Country Bet and Country Lily have gone to the big city mm-hmm. because someone's going to cheer them on and then tells them in the middle of the tournament on national television yeah. and he just stops what he's doing and leaves a little goofy mm-hmm. and also like I thought it was weird how when Country Bet goes into the city when they're in the hotel she's watching Dynasty the the soap mm-hmm. opera and she's even quoting it and I was thinking back in the 80s I mean like Unless you're just familiar with reruns, you know th- these shows weren't on more than once, and yet they, they set up this idea of, oh, there are these country folk, you know, at the county fair with the pig and slop, but yet she's watching this high-end, so unless she's just longing for the city. Well, yeah, rate.
0: I think that would be her wanting to be not in the country, not country folk, but, but I, you make a good point about, like, I don't know what season that episode would have been in in regards to when the show came out, so... Mm-hmm. How many times would she have seen? Did she record it on one of her Betamax? I'm wondering
1: because, like, even in Back to the Future, when there's that scene with the honeymooners, like, he R- Marty's not quoting it; he just goes, "Oh, I remember this one." This is Ralph as a spaceman. But yeah. like when Bette Miller's watching Dynasty, she's literally quoting it as it's coming in front of her. Um, I did like right before there's the reveal scene. There's a great scene where they're having breakfast, and whenever one of them leaves the table, the other one, like Country City Lily, leaves the table, and then Country Lily comes back. And then City Bet leaves a table and Country Bet comes back. And they're all just – its I, that was kind of funny. It looked kind of a little Marx Brothers-esque, but I did enjoy that. And even the, the reveal scene itself. Chad, I know you're a big Marx Brothers fan, but there's a scene where the the two Bets see each other and they do the whole duck soup mm-hmm. mirror, sh- mirror gag. I don't know. If, were you offended by that or did you, you – know?
0: I mean I don't think it lived up to the Marx Brothers standards, but I'll, I'll just throw in a little – jab that roger ebert had because you know i always like to quote roger ebert on the show because half the time i don't agree with his opinion but i kind of agree with him in this one it's he did not like this film and he said it's never funny when people just miss each other mm. and watching this movie i see i mean it happens in like we said every scene pretty much until the last 10 minutes when they finally meet up but it is because of the way the the Scenes play out. The movie's good, but it—I it, think it would have helped to had them meet sooner. And yeah. because after like the third or fourth miscue, you're just like, okay, they missed each other again. Like it's.
1: Yeah, no, that's 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 a, that's a very valid point. Um, but again, to me, it was just it was good enough. And as I mentioned, the, I really enjoyed the supporting cast. You know, Edward Herman. Mm. I really love Fred Ward. We we dropped his name a couple times, but there's a scene in particular where. He, like I said, he's, he's talking to the city lily. He thinks it's the country lily. And he's just selling her on the country. And it's just, it's a really, really wonderful moment.
0: Look, I'm doing just fine, really.
1: I know you do just fine. Whatever spot on earth they drop you on, it's just... Rose,
0: I know you. You don't belong in New York City. That's in your eyes. That's all over your face. You don't belong in that, that suit. I mean, all this Morimac stuff is just bleeding the heart right out of you. You know you want a whole other kind of life than this. I've never told that to a living soul. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> I know you. That that scene that we just heard, it's what I was talking about earlier. After Fred Ward tells all this stuff, why didn't City Lily be like, what are you talking about? I've never met you before in my life. But I just want to point out, Fred Ward... Uh, He was two years away from doing Tremors, which is an all-time classic. (laughs) But in 1988, he had another movie come out called The Prince of Pennsylvania, which co-starred Keanu Reeves. I when I went through my Keanu phase back in like 89, 90, I remember watching this. Okay. Uh, Bet Midler, City Bet, and City Lilies. I I don't know if you call them assistant CEOs, whatever they are. Minions, minions. Minions. There you go. That's a good term. Uh, I don't know who plays one of the guys. I didn't look that up, but the other one is played by Edward Herman. Yes, uh, great beloved actor.
1: You're yeah. in Lost Boys and Gilmore Girls. I was going like. to say this
0: is the year after Lost Boys, but yeah. Edward Herman did not look like he did in Lost Boys to me. Like it was a very stark difference. So
1: yeah. hey, I always. I mean, do you remember when he was he was uh, Herman Munster in the reboot of the Munster show? Uh, just. So sad when he passed away, and of course, you know, I was just going to say my cousin Vinnie. Mon- no, that's Fred Gwynn. That's yeah. like, the other. That's actual Herman Munster, right? <laughs> um, okay. Well, as far as the you know the end of the movie, we can wrap up. Uh, I thought it was kind of funny that, that you see highlights of the film during the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Kind of it's a little, little sitcomy, you know, in that regard. But I was going to ask you, like, what what do you think happens to the characters next? Because you know, when they're trying to, they have to they have to sort of I don't say kidnap, but they lock. The city bet away, so that they can try to make a pitch to the stockholders to keep the you know to, oh let's let's save the city, but then once it's all done, and then all the couples pair up, then all of a sudden the city bet is just totally on board with not selling the town. she doesn't really it, it, it's I wonder when she came around so that when you know what's going to happen next with these characters? you have four couples, and then you find yourself going okay are they are they upset about the city are they are the city folk going to go to the country are the country folk going to come to the city I don't know. I have nothing
0: because uh, this is an '80s broad comedy. I stopped thinking about the characters once the once the twi- the triplet showed up during the credits.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then I'm, the other thing I was going to ask you is which of the four couples do you think was the the, the high had the, the greatest rate of success after the movie's over? Uh, you got
0: to go with Rune and City and Country Lily.
1: Yeah, the Fred. War. I, I would imagine that's the same thing because I would think the the city bet's just going to put you know kick the Italian guy okay. away as soon as she's done with him um, I, I always like to joke about you know sequels or remakes you know p- potential for this film I see no reason to why not remake it go for it I mean you can you could have a little fun with it right
0: yeah yeah you could do that I I was going to- say something but i'll say that for in a few minutes um. well i
1: know mean, we talked about when we did three minute and baby we said oh cast the remake oh, yeah. and so i think we, we were going to post that out to the people on social media and i was like oh, okay you're probably going to get a lot of the, the same sort of people but the one that i thought of which was interesting was if you're going to make a remake of this film i would have cast jamila jamil from good place and mindy kaling hmm. i thought that would have i think that would have been kind of a fun one especially if you would have had them you would have had people of Middle Eastern descent, mm. bo- you know, born in West Virginia, which I'm sure there are people like that who exist in there, and they have the accent and stuff, and that would... I mean, maybe they stick out a little bit more and might might make them want to go to the big city.
0: I, I had a suggestion for casting, but I completely forgot to write it down, and Lisa, so I don't know.
1: McCarthy. Enough. Is Melissa McCarthy in it, probably? I Melissa
0: mean, McCarthy and Sandra Bullock, yes. Let's just bring them back together,
1: <laughs> or... Always. Um... Well, okay, Chad, I'll just ask you straight up. How do you rate this film on a scale of 1 to 10? I would give this probably
0: about a 7. I mean, it's good. Like, my big complaint, as I've mentioned twice now, is the lack of dialogue. And it really kind of took me out of certain scenes when people don't talk.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I said, I I gave it an 8. I thought it was uh, just a wonderfully written farce. Great performances, and I really enjoyed the relationships between the characters. You know, and it was, it was fun to watch. And I, mean, I don't, you said you went back and watched it a second time, but I can easily see watching this one a second time. I've, you know, time goes on. It's on Disney Plus now. You know, not a sponsor of the show, but it is there. Um, for from some of the trivia, I, I, I mentioned that their characters, Lily and Bette, their characters are named Sadie and Rose. They get their names from the writer Mark Rubell's mother and aunt. Um, there's something. I again, I, I try not to. Just look at IMDb and just crib off of what they say. But one of the notes I thought was funny on IMDb's trivia page was that it said before each city rose scene, Lily Tomlin would spin around in a circle until she got dizzy to get the airheaded qual- airheadedness quality of the character, which that makes sense because whenever you see her, she is mm-hmm. kind of just stumbling around all the time, right? Um, Touchstone almost changed the title of the film to Double Trouble, but then decided against it. And I don't know about you, Chad, that is a wise decision. Well, there's a it, it is a. You know, big
0: business is a better title. But, and I asked you before we started recording, there is another suggested title for this. Bette Midler wanted to call it Boobs in Business. Okay. And they apparently test, tested this out down in Orange County. And people thought it was a dirty film. And so they did not like it. So they said, you know, even though Bette was referring to... You know, goofs, idiots, business, right? Idiots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But yeah, everyone thought it would, and especially coming in the '80s, I can see people thinking this would probably have been a, you know, workplace sex comedy. But maybe big business was probably the right decision.
1: Lily Tomlin did a workplace workplace sex comedy, didn't she? Yeah. Um, this I thought was interesting. Is you know, of course, there's a scene that takes place at the F A O Sports toy store, which is the same store that they use in Big, which came out the same year, 1988. As far as going back from my own mm-hmm. history. I remember flying. I, I grew up in Hawaii, and we came back to Illinois. We flew to St. Louis one year. I think it was for a for a fa- for a funeral. And on the flight to St. Louis, we watched. They showed us Big Business on the plane, mm-hmm. and on the flight back, they showed us Big. So that's the only knowledge I have of those two movies. I don't think I've I don't think I've seen Big all the way through since then. You know, not touched on films. So we don't have to don't have to go mm-hmm. into details with it. But yeah, there's the connection between those two movies, let alone having the similar title and the same year. Uh, Filming locations, I thought, was interesting. The two towns, uh, Wandering Woods, Kentucky, and Cumberland Gap, Tennessee, were two of the towns. Within. That just sounds perfect for, the, for a movie like this. And it, I, IMDb said that, uh, that Jupiter Hollow, the fictional town in the movie, is not fictional. It's actually a, a commune outside of the town of Jane Lou, which I think was one of the characters mentioned at the beginning when they're talking about the hospital. That mm-hmm. he says, "Oh yeah, go to the, go to Jane Lou." I did my research. I went on Google Maps. I tried to find. I could not confirm that Jupiter Hollow existed. Jane Lou is there. There's a town called Jane Lou, West Virginia, but I found nothing on Jupiter Hollow. I was going to hand this over to Chad now because the last note of trivia I have is that there was a production company. The production company couldn't get the rights to film inside the Plaza Hotel. So after they shot all the exteriors in New York, they moved to Burbank and they reconstructed the interiors on a sound stage and then to recoup the cost, Disney built a sitcom around the hotel set which was called The Nut House and starred Claris Leachman and Harvey Corman. Chad, you said you watched that show?
0: I, I did. I have I have some information here. I actually have information for the show, yes. They this television show was created by Mel Brooks and Alan Spencer. Alan Spencer, real quick backstory tangent that has nothing to do with big business. He was a big fan of Marty Feldman. He snuck onto the Fox lot while they were filming Young Frankenstein, and met Marty Feldman, and they they bonded, and so Marty like let him stick around, and said that he was his his guest. Mm. Again, going back to our discussion of Steve Gutenberg on the Three Men and a Baby episode, and our stories about Steve or Steven Spielberg on the Universal. How much security did film? Lots used to have Because yeah. everybody's just sneaking in And getting careers
1: out of it Sure Correct me if I'm wrong But Alan Spencer's the guy That created Sledgehammer, right? I believe so, yes I saw, I went, He had a new sh- He had a, a show called Was it like Bullet to the Head? Mm-hmm. or. Bull- I went to a screening of that And he was there And did a Q&A And he was talking about Meeting Marty Feldman <laughs> And sneaking onto the Fox lot Yeah uh,
0: I, We came to Hollywood 30 years too late, I guess Yeah But they created a show That used the Plaza Hotel sets It's all about this kind of Uh Uh, Hotel, it's in disarray, like poor management, basically. And it's very Mel Brooks, very kind of almost like Abrams and Zucker. It's a lot of sight gags. Uh, One noticeable uh, thing that I liked was one of the actors was Mark Blankfield. He played the blind uh, elevator operator. People probably don't know him by his actual name, but people in our generation should know him as James from Saved by the Bell, the actor who is a waiter at the max oh, that nice. the kids hired to pretend to be Mr. Belding and Zach's Stad in an episode.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: So this show is called The Nut House. You can find episodes on YouTube. There. It's, again, it lasted 10 episodes in okay. 1989 <laughs> in like the summer. I had no recollection of it. In 1992, Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi write a film called The Nut House. Terrible movie. They have their names taken off of it. Sam Raimi is credited as Alan Smithy Jr. on the nice. film. It stars a uh, Australian comedian whose name I don't have written down.
1: Yahoo Serious?
0: Not Yahoo ah. Serious. I would have known that. Yeah. Uh, Amy Yasbeck and Tracy Lords. When she Lortz. was trying to go legit.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: The premise of the film is twins separated at birth. One becomes a popular politician, and the other is has split personalities and is crazy and he finally gets out and goes to reunite with his brother the movie is on youtube but only in a russian dub so (laughs) i was not able to watch it but i just found it how funny how this whole twins nuthouse circle comes full circle
1: yeah yeah that that is pretty impressive um, I always like to look at the soundtracks of these movies. If there's, is there a theme song? Um, for this one, there's not, a, there's not really a true theme song, but I don't know. I, I thought it was a fantastic soundtrack. Like, how can you not love... Uh, Sing, Sing, Sing by Benny Goodman, which plays over the opening credits. Like Everyone knows that song. Um, Higher Love, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, it plays during the closing credits of the movie, and that actually went all the way to number one in 1986, and it won two Grammy Awards for Steve Winwood for Record of the Year and Best Male Pop Vocal Performance. Uh, There's also a, a very memorable scene in the film... Which features George Benson's version of the song "On Broadway." I don't know if you remember that one. That's a that's a radio staple. After it was used in the uh, movie uh, nineteen seventy nine movie "All That Jazz," the whole opening credit scene of that. So, all right, well, let's take a look at the box office. Uh, it opened, like I said, it opened on June tenth of nineteen eighty eight. It opened at number three with six point one million. It finished behind "Crocodile Dundee 2 and "Big." Uh, also opening that week were "The Presidio." which was the Sean, Sean Connery, Connery, Mark Harmon, Meg Ryan, I believe. Okay. Okay. And Poltergeist 3 also opened that that Saw weekend. that in the theater. Did you? Oh, nice. Um, Three Men and a Baby and Good Morning Vietnam were still in theaters in June. Remember, Three Men and a Baby came out at Thanksgiving, and Good Morning Vietnam went wide in the beginning of, J- of January. So, yeah. Uh, it, g- it gets pushed down to fifth in its second week with the release of the Schwarzenegger movie Red Heat and also the comedy The Great Outdoors. It manages to stay in the top ten for about a month, and it slowly leaves theaters... By the end of July, it winds up grossing forty point one million dollars in seven weeks on a twenty million dollar budget. So not bad. I honestly, I thought it would have thought it was more pop popular than that, more successful. But still, don't they say if you can make twice the budget, you're break even or you're doing okay? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, awards consideration. I saw that both Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin were each nominated for the American Comedy Award as Funniest Actress in a Motion Picture. Bet Midler wins for the third year in a row after she'd already won mm-hmm. for Ruthless People and Outrageous Fortune. The other nominees, just I thought, it was interesting: Melanie Griffith in Working Girl, Jamie Lee Curtis in A Fish Called Wanda, and Susan Sarandon in Bull Durham. Which
0: and these were all nominated for Nickelodeon Kid Choice Awards too, right? No, no,
1: American Comedy Awards. Oh. What's funny is Susan Sarandon and Jamie Lee Curtis; those movies are better. Bull Durham and Fish Called Wanda are two of the best movies of yeah. the '80s. Those are i don't think of those roles as being very comedic, yeah. but it was. I guess. If, the way they figure out their awards is, oh, was the film a comedy and who was the best actor? Are you voting for the best actress or the funniest actress? I don't know. Um, as something I always like to do is, is to see if there's a connection with one of my favorite film franchises, which is James Bond. Uh, we talk a lot about Fred Ward. In 1985, he starred in a film called Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins, which was produced by Orion Pictures. And of course, that was it was supposed to be an American version of James Bond because Orion, if you don't. If you don't know, it was started by executives from United Artists, United Artists who created the James Bond franchise. Uh, Remo Williams was directed by Guy Hamilton, who had directed Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and Man with the Golden Gun, four of the Bond films. And it's Guy, not Guy. Right? As far as I know, he's, he's English, not French. Okay. And then we always like to look see if there's some sort of a personal connection with the film, and I think we may have mentioned it on a Ruthless People episode, but a few years back, Chad and I went to a double feature of airplane, and then he could gun, and there was a Q and A with Jim Abrams and the Zucker brothers.
0: I have to say, Mike, after watching this movie and watching clips of Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin, they will pro- we will probably see a movie with those two again before we see another Bette Midler Shelley Long collaboration.
1: You are probably correct.
0: Well, let's change gears now. Let's let's not stop in the '80s, but let's keep going back to the '40s with the little noir. That kind of breaks the rules of physics in a lot of ways. This is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Touchstone Pictures presents Eddie, Jessica, and Roger. A man, a woman, a rabbit in a triangle of trouble. Hide me, Eddie! Roger's wanted for murder. Jessica's wanted by Eddie. Eddie's wanted by Roger. Jessica!
1: Honey Bunny.
0: It's the greatest adventure a man, a woman, and a rabbit ever had. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a Steven Spielberg presentation, a Robert Zemeckis film. The story of greed, sex, and murder. Rated PG.
1: Yes, released on June 22nd of 1988. This is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, I always liked, you know, we did... There's a lot of backstory in this movie, so... I mean, I'll see how much trivia we can get to. We could be here for a while. Um, But what I loved is there's a connection with Roger Rabbit and Ron Miller, who founded Touchstone, because Walt Disney Pictures purchased the film rights to the book. The book is entitled Who Censored Roger Rabbit? And Ron Miller, when he was running Disney at the time, 1981, purchased the rights. And this was shortly after the book was published. It was written by an author named Gary K. Wolfe. Um, the script for the film, the adaptation I should say, was from Jeffrey, P- Jeffrey Price and Peter Seaman, who had no writing credits to their name at the time that they were hired, but then Disney would go on to produce the first sh- published script that they had done, which was Trenchcoat, hmm. a movie in 1983, which I talked a little bit about in, that f- in our first episode, because that was one of those last Disney movies that before Touchstone came out that just didn't do very well. I'd be very curious to see that one, I think it's Margot Kidder. Um, so then between 1981 and 1983 Disney began shooting test footage combining animation with live action, Uh, Roger is voiced by uh, Pee Wee Herman himself Paul Mm. Rubens Um, Robert Zemeckis offered to direct the film in 1982 but Disney turned him down because his only two films at that point which were I Want to Hold Your Hand and Use Cars, both of them had bombed ironically both of them were also Steven Spielberg productions Mm. and at that time, I know Zemeckis had a lot of trouble trying to get a movie made without Spielberg's name attached to it. Bring in Michael Eisner, who brings the project out of limbo in around 1985-86 to be produced by Amblin Entertainment, Steven Spielberg. I read where he decided to do it as a co-production because he knew that it was going to be expensive and he, didn't, he wanted to defray some of the costs and wouldn't be so bad he could take some of the hits. But then on the flip side, when the movie was successful, then Amblin Entertainment got half of all the profits. Um, Ironically enough, Zemeckis comes back because he is hired to direct after he does Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future. In the meantime, I didn't see that Terry Gilliam had turned down the film due to the technical complexity of blending the live actors with the animation.
0: seems very weird that he would turn it down just because of uh, being a difficult shoot, but... I don't know. Maybe I mean I'm sure it's a lot different than just dealing with practical effects on set.
1: Yeah, I mean he would. I wonder how much different this film would be if Terry Gilliam had directed. Um, I'm going to go with probably not very entertaining and rewatchable. Weird. Um, So many actors were considered for the role of Detective Eddie Valiant. Harrison Ford was Spielberg's choice, but they he joked that they couldn't afford him. Uh, Zemeckis stated that Bill Murray was his first choice, but they couldn't get a hold of him in time. Because apparently they say Bill Murray has this weird thing where he goes away and doesn't have, doesn't have a phone nearby. And he found, when he found out later, he said he would have totally yeah. taken the role. But again, how different would it have been with Bill Murray in the role? I also read that Eddie Murphy turned down the role, yeah. which again... I, I don't, it's just a totally different movie. I, I don't know. Bob Hoskins is just so perfect. He had, um, Bob Hoskins, of course, had acted in a lot of British television series throughout the 1970s, along with some small film roles. In 1984, he starred in the movie Lasseter with Tom Selleck, which we discussed on our Three Minute a Baby episode. And he also starred in the film The Cotton Club, which was the Francis Ford Coppola movie. Interestingly enough, The Cotton Club, the real life Cotton Club, was an inspiration for The Ink and Paint Club in Roger Rabbit. In 1985, he appeared with Terry Gilliam in the film Brazil, and his breakout role was in 1986 for a film called Mona Lisa, which he won the Golden Globe, and he was nominated for an Oscar. Of course, he lost to Paul Newman from The Color of Money. I I did see see an interview interview with him recently where he said he was Brian De Palma's, quote, standby Mm -hmm. choice to play Al Capone in The Untouchables. He said Brian De Palma said, I want Al Capone, or I want... um, De Niro? De Niro to play Al Capone he said I wanted De Niro but in case he doesn't I would like you to do it so don't do any other movies and then he said when De Niro took the role he De Palma sent him a check for like $200,000 and said thanks for being my standby choice and so Bob Hoskins said, he went back to him and said hey is there any other movies you want me to not be in I'll be more than happy to do them um, and then several actors were considered but turned down the role like I said I always look at whenever you see someone say oh they were considered what does that even mean? But for the role of Judge Doom specifically, I, I noticed apparently all these people turned down the role. So we've got Christopher Lee, Vincent Price, John Lithgow, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum, Dennis Hopper, and Christopher Walken. Lastly, there's an actor named John Pertwee. I don't know if you're familiar, overly familiar with him, Chad. He played the Doctor on Doctor Who. He was the third Doctor, the one right before Tom Baker um tim curry there's a story that tim curry auditioned and steven spielberg robert zemeckis eisner katzenberg they were all terrified by his audition as as judge doom um but christopher lloyd so he gets cast we know him from uh one floor of the cuckoo's nest mr mom star trek three plays a klingon buckaroo Banzai, clue one of my favorite movies and of course the tv show taxi and of course, he, he worked with Zemeckis on Back to the Future and the really great, amazing stories episode called uh-huh. "Go to the Head of the Class." With Mary Stuart Masterson and is it Scott Grimes, the Redhead okay.
0: K- Scott Grimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking when rewatching Roger Rabbit because I saw this movie in the theater, but I don't know if I put together that Judge Doom was Doc Brown, really. And I would love to close this story off with like a, a great realization, but no, I just don't know if I uh, if I put two and two together or not.
1: Well, I, I thought it was funny, it was one of the last movies that he did before Roger Rabbit was Walk Like a Man with Howie Mandel, which I think we discussed that one previously. Um, I didn't see that Marvin Acme, the, the studio, studio head, right, in the film, he's played by longtime entertainer Stubby K, and he, of course, I mentioned that because Stubby K was in Cat Ballou, and he also was in some of the old Doctor Who episodes, mm-hmm. and he did an episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hours. There's my Alfred Hitchcock connection. So for the voice of Roger Rabbit, we have Charles Fleischer. And he'd done a lot of television since the early 1970s. He was on Welcome Back, Cotter, Laverne and Shirley, Punky Brewster. All of his feature film work is mostly bit parts. Interestingly enough, he did a movie called Die Laughing, which I thought, given one of the major plot points of Roger Rabbit, I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, He was in Night Shift, uh, the horror movie The Hand, uh, Nightmare, the first Nightmare on Elm Street and then a movie called Bad Dreams with mm-hmm. Dean Cameron from Summer School. Nice.
0: And he has an HBO One Night Stand uh, comedy special which I think is one of the best One Night Stand specials. Really? Yeah.
1: Okay. And then he, he he has a voice credit for a film we discussed on, on our on our I forget which episode it was, but a movie called Deadly Friend, which is I think it's the Wes Craven movie, right? Yes. Kirstie Swanson movie. Yeah. Ah, okay. Everyone's in place. Now we've got to get to this, I think, amazing movie. I like I said, it's, it's quite an ingenious beginning. You know, It looks like it's supposed to be a cartoon short, and then it pulls out to reveal a live-action shoot. I don't know. When, did you see this movie as a kid, and did that, did that totally fool you when you saw it? Yeah, I saw it in the theater. In the theater, okay. Yeah, as a kid.
0: And yeah, you expected, I think when the movie started, you were just expecting it to be a, a short before the actual movie. And so oh, really? when it gets to the point with the refrigerator falling on the head and... Joel Silver coming into frame being like, cut, cut, cut. Yeah, it's uh, very shocking. Groundbreaking.
1: Yeah, I I did not see this in the theater. I saw it on VHS. But yeah, again, I mean, because I knew that they were putting shorts on some of those Disney VHS tapes, so I thought it was the same thing. Oh, there's a little cartoon before the movie starts, so I give them credit. But what I love about the movie is that it's it's that total classic film noir in the in the vein of Chinatown. Like it has the that sparkling dialogue and all of the and it has all the character tropes like the hard boiled detective and the femme fatale. I didn't mention Joanna Cassidy is great in the movie and she plays like for lack of a better word I call her the Tess Trueheart like from Dick Tracy. Um, and of course it has you know the corrupt public official that it's he's supposed to be the judge but he also kind of has that darker side. Um, I mean I, I I mean Christopher Lloyd is inspired casting as well but he was a I thought he was a fantastic villain who was actually Quite terrifying. That scene when he's when he first shows the dip, and he and he, and he trying to dips this shoe into it. That's I mean, from a Disney yeah. film, I was I was really surprised by that. I don't know if it was it was kind of sets up set the tone for how how are you going to make this guy evil in the middle of this movie that's sort of cartoonish, I guess. And there's also I don't know there's there, there's a scene where they're all in the bar and he's gonna he's going to a chalkboard to like write that he's looking for oh. a rabbit. And there's a veteran stand next to the chalkboard, and the veteran only has one arm. And it's a little subtle thing, but Christopher Lloyd like, uses the guy's sleeve to to wipe the, the chalkboard down. It just, who does that?
0: Well, and speaking of that scene, um, one line that I know went over my head during when I saw it in the theater is the guy that uh, Eddie Valiant has warned Roger because Roger's been hanging out in the bar talking to everybody, and Eddie's like, "These people aren't your friend; they will turn you in." So this one guy starts to turn him me and like, "Yeah, oh, yeah, I've seen a rabbit. He's right here next to me. Say hi, Harvey." Yeah, totally missed that as a as a kid.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm trying to think if I would have known about that. I mean, my parents always told me about. It. I remember my dad talking about the James Stewart movie with the giant rabbit, the invisible rabbit. Um, what what I thought was interesting too is again, we would have I would have seen this at around age twelve, thirteen. And I knew that there were famous actors who had done voices for because all the cartoons that I saw back in the day it was Mel Blanc and you know those kind of people who were known for doing cartoon voices. And this is the first time I really noticed a star. Like I'd seen *Romancing the Stone*, I think at that point, to where I recognized, wait a minute, that's Kathleen Turner doing the voice of Jessica. And like I said, she just she nails it. You've got the wrong idea about me, Mr. Valiant. I'm a pawn in this, just like Roger. Can you help me find him? Just name your price, and I'll pay it.
0: Yeah, I bet you would. you got to have the rabbit to make the scam work.
1: No, 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 I love my husband. You've got me all wrong. You don't know how hard it is being a
0: woman looking the way I do. Yeah,
1: well, you don't know how hard it is being a man looking at a woman looking the way you do.
0: I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way.
1: Another memorable scene is of course the scene where Eddie and Roger are handcuffed together. I couldn't help but notice that it reminds me of the fine touchstone film DOA when Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid are glued together at the wrist.
0: The, this reminded you of DOA? Uh, okay.
1: Touchstone. That it, it's, touchstone. it's just it's, it's corporate synergy. They got to keep referencing their previous work. I don't know. Uh-huh. Um just on the whole like i said we can this is not a movie that i i feel like i need to talk about because i think a lot of people have already seen it we know how great it is i i mean it's it's a solid mystery just amazing special effects what was funny was watching it again i realized it's not maybe not as funny as it was when i was younger but it was still enthralling like it's a great mystery. And I've heard, supposedly, there were 40 different drafts of the screenplay. One where Jessica was the villain. One where Baby Herman was the villain. And so to take this book that I'll hand it over to you here now to talk about, because Chad has actually bought, purchased and read the book, to take that book and make this movie out of it and make this really, really good story. To, it shows you the idea. You always talk about um, it's two rewrites away from a good. Well, this had 40 rewrites, and so that's how you got this perfect movie.
0: Then that's how you go from a mediocre book to a very good movie. Yeah, I I was curious when we sat down to watch this, and, and knowing that it was based on a book, I'm like, okay, you know, to be diligent to this show, I want to read the book and find out what the book was like. The book is the only similarities between the book and the movie are the characters, the four main characters, really, and for the fourth being Baby Herman, not Judge Doom. But in the in the book, Roger is a comic strip tune and all the tunes speak in thought bubbles so doesn't really translate well on page i didn't think and he is he he is assigned to um a distributor um and he's baby herman's sidekick but he wants his own strip and the guy that owns the 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 publishing company won't give him one and it's jessica's ex- Uh, ex-boyfriend who she has left roger and gone back to Mm. that guy gets killed roger also gets killed in the same night but tunes have an ability to make a doppelganger of themselves and so before he was killed roger makes a doppelganger to go seek out eddie to help solve this murder
1: mystery and it uh Sounds interesting to me. I kind of want to read it.
0: It took a a little while to get into the book because I was so used to the movie and, like, trying Mm -hmm. to. And even though Roger is supposed to be talking in thought bubbles, in my head, he talks
1: like Charles Fleischer. Yeah, you can't get past that, right? And then
0: I like it. The book did eventually win me over until the ending, and when they reveal everything that happened. Uh, yeah, it's very. Uh, I'm I'm glad they changed it for the movie, but mm. it is a good book. I mean, it's an interesting book, I should say, and yeah. it's only like about 230 pages, so you can read it, you know, if, in a few days if you're not too busy. But yeah, it's it's there, yeah. and and I know the writer has written a couple other books about Roger Rabbit, which I'd be curious to read, just because given the con- the events of this book, I don't know how you follow it up.
1: Yeah, I read. He he wrote a book in 1991 called Who Plugged Roger Rabbit and then in, in 2013 he wrote another one called Who Whacked Roger Rabbit and supposedly they have more in line with the movie than the first book hmm. like they, I think that they replaced the thought bubble in, the, in their their, anim, their their cartoons rather than comic strip characters but yeah the movie itself I just I said the incredible, painstaking work that went into making it. The production values are amazing. You watch all the behind-the-scenes footage and you see what they had to go through. And, and then to get a movie that I really feel has no real flaws out of it is is quite impressive. Yeah,
0: I'll jump back real quick to the book because a couple of notes that I just want to make is that there's a uh, subplot with uh, a Toon pornographer who uh, is kind of in, Jessica is kind of indebted to. But she does use the phrase in the book. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Yeah, uh-huh. of course. So, and yeah, the book is not very uh, Disney related. But I uh, one note I have, which is kind of funny, I guess to me it was when I read it, is the Sid Slees, the pornographer. When he's talking with Roger, he offers Roger a job. He's like, "I'll put you up in a in a tuxedo, and I'll make you a real playboy." Ba-dum, nice.
1: Bum. Nice. Uh, well, yeah, that's funny. I mean, because if you look at the book versus the movie, it sounds like the book had a little bit more adult themes. Yeah. And I know that, like, Michael Eisner, when they... when they, Well, Disney had bought the book years ago, but then when Eisner came on, he, they said he, he released it as a touchstone movie because he wanted to distance himself from the Disney label. And I always joke about the touchstone touch, and this movie has, you know, there's alcoholism and murder and sex, and I could see why. It, it, I find it so ironic that now... Disney has sort of co-opted it and welcomed it back into the fold, and you know which we we'll can we can get into later. Um, I guess from a scale of one to ten, I, I would give it a, also a solid eight. I thought that you know the dazzling technical production, and it's a fun thrill ride. It it also is an, a love letter to the old gangster pictures and the golden age of animation.
0: Yeah, I would go a solid seven and a half to eight. It's uh, you know I've never seen Chinatown in its entirety, but. This movie, what I have seen and know of Chinatown, reminded me a whole lot of that. And it also just reminded me that here in L.A., why did they get rid of the cable car system? Because it would be so much better for traffic these days.
1: And it's funny because I read that supposedly there was going to be two sequels to Chinatown. One of them was The Two Jakes, which was made. And there was another one that was going to be called Cloverleaf. And it was about a murder mystery involving the cable cars and the freeway, which is what this one had to do with. Um, Sequels... I I mean, when you have a movie that's this successful, I can imagine that they they want to try to get a sequel. I I read that there was a prequel. The first one that I saw that was was written by a a guy named Nat Malden, who had written for Barney Miller, Newhart, and the TV show Night Court. It was called Roger Rabbit, The Toon Platoon. Chad also bit the bullet, and you said you read that screenplay.
0: (laughs) I did. I found it online. I read it. It's uh, easy to see why it did not get made. It takes place before... Hence the word prequel. But it's all about Roger leaving his human family in Kansas, coming out to Hollywood to try to find his rabbit mother and then getting swept up in World War II and becoming a war hero after he rescues Jessica and her roommate who've been captured by Nazis. So Roger is in Germany on his way to Hollywood. He meets this another aspiring actor who has left the Air Force because he has a fear of heights Uh, He gets cast in a film that Roger crashes the set, and that's how Roger becomes a big star. It's it's not... I would not say that it was a movie that Disney would want to make, especially given the amount of language and violence. It's not very PG. It's... And it's a very generic um, uh, war story. But the one highlight is there's a scene when they take all the all the animated characters and send them off to war because like, oh, we got these soldiers that cannot die and all this and the human soldiers are looking out over the bridge and they're like, the toons are supposed to be engaging and the toons are just like running around crazy and you, you see and it, it's it's the Tasmanian devil, it's, <laughs> uh, I think, Porky Pig on them it's like, well, well these, these toons are loony.
1: <sighs> yeah. Yeah, and plus Steven Spielberg was, working on Schindler's List at the time, and so supposedly he didn't want to try to make comedies about the Nazis. So Michael Eisner commissioned a rewrite in 1997 from the writers Deanna Oliver and Sherry Stoner. Of course, they had done Animaniacs and Tiny Toon Adventures with Spielberg, and they had also written the feature film Casper. They changed the title to Who Discovered Roger Rabbit?, and they dropped the whole World War II subplot and replaced it with Roger's Rise to Stardom along, on Broadway and in Hollywood. Supposedly, Disney liked the idea enough that Alan Minken was hired to write five songs for the film, and they then test footage... Uh, where they blended traditional animation with CGI, but Disney wasn't overly happy with the product. I read a, I read an, another article. There's a great website called Mouse Planet. I want to give them a shout out because they they just really go in depth with a lot of their Disney coverage. And they mentioned how um, supposedly I, Michael Eisner liked some of the test footage for the C, all CGI version, but he, the projected cost was 100 million dollars. And then he noted that the the studio had lost money on some recent sequels, and so in the summer of 1999, Michael Eisner officially suspended all the pre-production, and the money that would have gone to that sequel was invested in the film Pearl Harbor, which we'll get into as we, that movie came out in 2001, so we got a few years before we go into that. Um, they brought the idea back for in the sequels in the 2010s. You know, Robert Zemeckis has repeatedly teased the idea that they would use like motion capture and maybe a digital technology to have a ghost version of Bob Hoskins's mm-hmm. character. Um, and he supposedly Zemeckis says he has a great idea, but there's a quote here, which also came from the same article I read on Mouse Planet. This is from Robert Zemeckis, where he said, "Quote." The current corporate Disney culture has no interest in Roger, and they certainly don't like Jessica at all. Most sequels, you're behind the eight ball on them. Audience want, audiences want it to be the same movie, but different. If it's too similar, they don't like it. And if it's too different, they really don't like it. There's nothing more difficult. So it's, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. What's funny is if you go on IMDb, there is a Who Frame Roger Rabbit 2 page, and it says, just says it's in the pre-production or planning stage. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, from a trivia standpoint, I, I watched this film on Blu-ray. The film was on Disney Plus, not a sponsor, and they. My, well, I had a friend of mine who let me borrow the Blu-ray because I wanted to watch all the bonus features, and some of it's interesting. A lot of the same trivia that we are that you already know about if you've read the IMDb trivia se- section. But what I did thought was interesting was that they had to literally draw all of the scenes. They the actors acted opposite nothing, and then the animators had to fill in. And, and draw a, a frame like they, they didn't do that thing in animation where you do one frame and you shoot it or you twice. do one picture and you shoot it twice so you only to do 12 frames a second they had to literally do 24 frames in a second and so when they were done with the film there were 82,000 hand-drawn cells to animate the film, uh, we talked a little bit about the the sh- dipped shoe mm-hmm. that uh, Judge Doom terrorizes small children with that are watching in the audience. The voice of that dipped shoe was Nancy Cartwright, the voice of Bart Simpson. Uh, no wonder that shoe said I Caramba, as it was being dipped. Icarumba. As I mentioned, we watched the film on Blu-ray. My wife and I we specifically chose the subtitled trivia track to give us some, in- some interesting factoids and the one thing that popped out to me which I found out later is in every article written about Roger Rabbit mentions that you know St- Steven Spielberg used his connections to go to Warner Brothers and license the Looney Tunes characters but the studio would only allow the, their characters to be in this film if they got as much screen time as the Disney counterparts which explains why the scene with Daffy and Donald Duck—they're playing piano together—and then there's a scene with Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse, and they're skydiving at the same time, which is interesting. I mean, I guess it's only—it's only fair.
0: Yeah. Now, speaking of that Daffy and Donald scene, that's a very famous scene for a not-so Disney-related reason.
1: Do tell us, Chad Smart.
0: Oh, are you not familiar? Do you not know?
1: Maybe I read a lot of trivia uh, on this movie recently. When
0: so. Donald is getting upset with Daffy. Donald says something that is very questionable in nature. Now, I watch the movie with actual subtitles on because I have loud neighbors and sirens that you can probably hear in the background of all my podcasts.
1: And I will say that my wife and I watch DuckTales, and we have to put subtitles on specifically for Donald.
0: (laughs) And the subtitle that came up for Donald is Nitwit, but it sounds... A little different. Oh, and that's I see all I'll what say. So I didn't. I won't know if you heard it when you watched or if you were paying attention. But uh,
1: it's a fine Disney film. I didn't yeah. want to think anything bad about it. Um, we joked about it off the air, but Chad, do you remember the video games? There was one for the Game Boy and one for the Nintendo Entertainment
0: System. I don't remember the Game Boy one, but I owned the NES version. You owned it,
1: really? I did. Was it any better than the E.T. game or the... I love the E.T. game. (laughs) I don't know why it gets a bad rep. I had the Nintendo... I remember one year for Christmas, my parents got me the Friday the 13th game. Oh, it's bad. And that was just so lame. How was the Roger Rabbit game?
0: Uh, As a kid, it was fine. I watched a YouTube speedrun version of it uh, about a week before we recorded this, and... Uh, it did not. It doesn't hold up, and apparently the boss battle with Judge Dredd is like Judge very easy. Or Judge Doom. Uh, Judge Dredd's a whole different movie. That would be an awesome boss <laughs> crossover, battle yes. with Judge Dredd. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it doesn't hold up, and uh, it, I guess it's very easy that you just hold down the punch button and back him into a corner and punch him. But yeah, it's it's very similar in uh, terms of another Touchstone-based video game, and that's Dick Tracy.
1: I remember that game. Well, that, I think I had that on the Sega Genesis. Okay. Does that sound right? I'm trying to think. We'll get into it when we discuss that movie. Or was it in Nintendo? Okay. Uh, the last thing I have in the trivia section was writer Gary K. Wolf. He would later there was some legal action that he was involved with. I got this off of the uh, AFI's website and it said that in two thousand and one there was an article in the LA Times mentioning that Gary Wolf had filed a lawsuit against Disney claiming that the company had not paid him millions of dollars in gross receipts, which he believed to include all non-monetary promotional partnerships. Disney denied the claim, saying that Wolf was only entitled to contingent compensation. The court ruled against Wolf, who appealed the case in 2004. This time around, the court ruled in favor of Wolf, but only granted him $180,000 in compensation instead of the $8 million that he sought. And then in the same article, another article was written in 2008, and it says that Disney lawyers are said to have discovered that the studio had been overpaying Wolf and that he owed Disney up to $1 million.
0: Wait, wait. Are you telling me that a Hollywood Studios accountants uh, are saying that they paid out too much money? And, yeah, I don't...
1: I call shenanigans. Cook the books. Uh, The last thing that's mentioned on the AFI page is that the legal action has never been resolved. Nothing's ever really come out of that. Um, I don't know if we would call them sequels necessarily, but there were three Roger Rabbit shorts that were theatrically re-released. The first one was in 1989. It's a film called Tummy Trouble. It was was attached to the film Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh, I have a note here that says that that is the first Disney short to accompany a feature film since 1974. And the short was called Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2. And the film was The Island at the Top of the World. I don't know that one. I, I looked it up on Disney+. Plus. I don't know if it's on there. So that might be an interesting one. The second Roger Rabbit short was released in 1990. And it's called Roller Coaster Rabbit. And this is where we get some of the studio intrigue. Um, supposedly, Steven Spielberg wanted to have Roller Coaster Rabbit... Be attached to the Amblin film Arachnophobia, which was being produced for Disney's new Hollywood Pictures division. But then Michael Eisner was worried about the success of the upcoming big budget Dick Tracy film being produced by Disney and felt that the short could help its box office some more. Uh, since both films were being released by Disney, Eisner made the final decision to put the Roger Rabbit short with Dick Tracy. It was felt in the entertainment industry that so doing did help the film, but it would have helped arachnophobia do better if it had been attached to it instead. I got this from, this is again, this is from Mouse Planet. I want to give some credit there to a writer named Jim Corkus who did a lot of the research on that. Uh, the third film was called Trail Mix-Up in 1993. And so before we can get to that, again, go back to the Mouse Planet article. And Jim Corkus says that Spielberg felt he was being disrespected, with, by not having the, film attach, the short attached to arachnophobia. And that his is co-ownership rights were being ignored. So Disney began production on another Roger short called Hair in My Soup. And Spielberg said he didn't like the story and he demanded production be shut down. Disney pitched several other ideas, but, but Spielberg rejected them all for the next couple of years. So we finally get to the one called Trail Mix-Up. That was originally planned to be attached to the movie Rocketeer. But they couldn't get it out in time, and so it was attached to a Disney Amblin co-production, which was a film called A Far Off Place. I have no recollection of that film. I'm not overly familiar with that one either. I'd look it up, make sure it wasn't a touch for me. It's no. it's just a Disney film. So we look at the box office. Well, I mean, this was a smash. It, it was it mentioned it opened June 22nd, which was a Wednesday. It opened at number one with $11.2 million. No other films opened wide that same weekend. Uh, Big Business was number seven. The Wait, week.
0: this movie opened at number one with a, an $11 million opening $11 weekend. million,
1: dollars, yes.
0: Now, if you had an opening with an extra one in that digit, you would be fighting for first place on an opening holiday weekend.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it was... End of June, so we're a couple of weeks before July 4th, right? But, yeah, so I said Big Business was was number seven that week. Uh, On its second weekend, which was July 4th, so I guess it it comes out the week before July 4th, uh, uh, Roger Rabbit slips to number two because Coming to America is released. And then the, the, the following week it falls to number three because we get the Dirty Harry film The Deadpool, But then in its fifth week, Roger Rabbit climbs back to number one. I I, I thought that was pretty interesting, to have it slide from first, second, third, and then yet go back to number one as the summer goes along. Um, It it finishes number two for the next couple of weeks because it it falls behind another touchstone film, which we'll talk about in our next episode, called Cocktail. By the time it gets to Labor Day weekend, it's hovering around number five and number six. It's now 11 weeks into its run, and it's still doing quite well. Uh, films like Young Guns and Night on Elm Street 4 come out and kind of push it down a little bit. It stays in the top ten all the way uh, through the end of September. We see films like Moon Over Parador, and then uh, Die Hard, Nikushka. No well, one uh, saw a moon over Parador. <laughs> it, it, maybe when it opened, it kind of you know starts propelling some of the older movies down. Uh, Die Hard and A Fish Called Wanda also have a, like a slow build, and they start going wider and wider and get more popular. So Roger Rabbit finally leaves the theaters by the end of October, and its final tally is $156.4 million over the course of a solid four-month run. It ends the year as the second-highest-grossing film uh, behind Rain Man, and the budget, I've, I've seen stories say the budget was 70000000 million. I've heard people say, no, no, it was actually 50 So we'll say $156 million on a $50 million budget. Hey, not too shabby. Mm-hmm. Uh, from an awards consideration, it wins three Oscars, uh, Best Editing, Best Sound Effects Editing, and Best Visual Effects. It's nominated for three others, uh, Best Cinematography, which it loses to Mississippi Burning Best Sound, which it loses to Bird, the Clint Eastwood movie about uh, the jazz musician Charlie Parker. And Best Art Direction, which loses to Dangerous Liaisons. The Animation Supervisor, Richard Williams, receives a Special Achievement Academy Award for Animation, Direction, and Creation of the Cartoon Characters. If you go on YouTube, there is actually a clip from that Oscar ceremony where Robin Williams and Charles Fleischer present him with the award. Robin Williams is wearing a Mickey ears and the big white gloves. It's pretty funny. It gets two Golden Globe nominations. Best Picture, Musical or Comedy, which loses to the movie Working Girl. And Bob Hoskins also gets a nomination for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy, and he loses to Tom Hanks from Big. Robert Zemeckis receives a Director's Guild nomination, but he loses to Barry Levinson from Rain Man. Uh, Price and Seaman get a Writer's Guild nomination, But they lose two dangerous liaisons. Alan Silvestri, who composed the score, who's done a lot of Robert Zemeckis scores, he gets a Grammy nomination for Best Instrumental Score and loses to the 1987 Best Picture Academy Award winner, The Last Emperor. And I read, I could not verify this, but I did read an article that said Charles Fleischer got a Best Supporting Male nomination at the American Comedy Awards. And finally, my soapbox, the Nickelodeon's Kids' Choice Award. As we mentioned, the first year of the award in 1987, the best picture goes to R-rated Beverly Hills Cop 2 rather than Adventures in Babysitting. This year, Touchstone redeems himself, and Roger Rabbit wins the Favorite Movie Award for the Nickelodeon's Kids' Choice. The second annual, the two films that it beat, Beetlejuice and Police Academy 5.
0: Definitely going forward with the Out of Touchstone podcast, those Kid Choice Awards, those are what we're going to be keeping an eye on.
1: Those are the Oscars for Touchdom, I yeah. think, yeah. Um, just like our first one, there, there's an there's a Alfred Hitchcock connection. I always talk about the James Bond connection. I'd love to see that if there's something there. There's an Alfred Hitchcock connection with this film, and that is Gary K. Wolfe had pitched a couple of Roger Rabbit shorts to be produced after the film. One was called Rear Window Rabbit, and the other one was simply called The Birds. And I found a great quote from Gary K. Wolfe, and he says, Quote, I do believe you don't have to be a Alfred Hitchcock buff or even have seen Rear Window to think the cartoon is funny. If you have seen Rear Window, then you will understand the deeper humor in that cartoon. Alfred Hitchcock's been really big lately. There's been an, a movie, an Alfred Hitchcock film, a cable station movie about Tippi Hedren and the birds, and now a television series about the Bates Motel. Alfred Hitchcock is really big now. This was, I think, from 2013. So um, our personal connection, I probably talk about this, more often than Chad likes to hear but I attended the Northern Illinois University and Robert Zemeckis also attended Northern Illinois University before he transferred to USC and went on to become famous so my school actually offered a class on the films of Robert Zemeckis so I had to to study this movie we all had to do group presentations I did mine on Back to the Future so I learned more about this movie that was 20 years ago I don't know how much I remember but um, and then I believe you came with me in 2012 ...with the release of the film Flight, the Denzel mm. Washington movie. Robert Zemeckis did a Q&A in Santa Monica and we got to hear him. It was a shame because I really wanted to meet him... ...but they said he had just flown in from New York and had been doing press for the movie. He looked dead tired. He came in, he did, he knocked out like a 30-40 minute Q&A... ...and then he was out the door. Um, i like to have Chad Smart talk about another connection... I don't know when this was, maybe 10 uh, years ago? A little bit more. I believe it was 2007. Chad and I went to a bar. and Yeah, it
0: was, at my I believe, my first summer out here in L.A., and you had talked about this band called Kill Lola. Yes. And so you're like, oh, they're playing at this place called Safari Sam's. It was like $5 cover, I think, to get in. There are two other bands playing on that night. Uh, one of them was called the Dolly Rots, who have gone on to be somewhat successful in their genre. And the opening band was a band called Lots of Love. And female fronted band, very unique voice for the singer. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean that in a complimentary way. But all night we're sitting in this small club that, you know, there's not a whole lot of people there because these bands weren't huge. And this guy keeps walking around with the video camera. And we're like, is that Charles Fleischer? <laughs> and so it's like, it looks like him. And so. I ended up, after Lots of Love, was done with her set. So I saw the singer walking around. I asked if they had any CDs to buy. She said, oh, yeah, let me go. You know, I have some in my trunk. So we walk out to her car. I buy a CD from her trunk. The next day, I find her on MySpace, or find the band on MySpace. My because space, yes. this is the time period we're dealing with. And I see that Charles Fleischer is, like, in their top eight. <laughs> and, and so I just keep on I was like, oh, you know, uh, really enjoyed the show. Was that Charles Fleischer at your show last night? And she's like, yeah, he's my dad. So Jessica Fleischer was the lead singer of Lots of Love. I did their the band's website is still active.
1: Is it? Although okay?
0: I have not heard anything from them. Since about 2010 or 11, I think it's the last time we saw them in concert. Yeah.
1: We, sw- we went to another bar, and we saw them, and Charles Fleischer's there at the yeah. bar with a video camera. And, yeah, that was yeah. the last time I saw them, yeah. And
0: so I reached out through the Contact Us page and just told them that we were doing this podcast. They never – Jessica has never responded, so I don't know if they keep up with it. But uh, I would check them out. Lots of love. They have some videos on YouTube. And I know that Jessica has also written a uh, children's book and as I was, when I was writing her, I, I was questioning whether or not she was named after Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> but then I realized, like, no, there's pictures of her, I think, with, or did I remember it as, seeing a story or hearing her say something about she had actually attended uh, a premiere of Roger Rabbit with Princess Diana, like in attendance, and got to meet Princess Diana. Wow. So so she was named, just ironically, or coincidentally, same name as Jessica yeah, Rabbit. Yeah, I the
1: book would have been written probably before she was born oh, then, in yeah. that regard. Yeah. The last personal connection we have is just recently uh, we talked about a lot about this nostalgia con that that Chad I went with. I went with Chad and my wife and my wife paid a little bit of extra money to uh, meet Christopher Lloyd and so we got, we got a picture with him and that was kind of fun. <laughs> else to say. That's all, folks. Hmm. I like the sound of that. That's all, folks. <laughs> yes, that's all, folks, for Roger Rabbit. And also, we should always remember, smile, darn you, smile. So, in conclusion, Chad, I mean, we always like to try to look and see, do these films kind of fit that Disney ideal? Was it a good idea? I mean, Roger Rabbit was in production for years. It seems like it was a really smart idea to have Disney buy it, and then mm-hmm. by the time they get into production, Touchstone rolls around, and it becomes the perfect outlet for it, right? I will agree with that statement. Yeah. And big business, I, I think, as well, is some of the sexual innuendos, and I think there's a scene where there's a guy buying condoms and stuff. It's like, okay, maybe we put it out under Touchstone. Mm-hmm. We can kind of mask the fact that it's Disney. I i Two good choices for this film. I I give credit to Katzenberg and a little shout-out to Ron Miller for uh, buying the rights of the book. And to compare Disney and Touchstone, I always like to see, well, what did Walt Disney Pictures put out during the same time period? Um, These two Touchstone films came out in June, and so there were no Disney originals during that time frame. But on July 15th, the studio re-releases Bambi. It opens at number four on its opening weekend with 7.2 million dollars, and it goes on to gross 39 million in six weeks. So that's about it for now. Coming up on the next episode, I, you know, we got two really solid movies this time out. Next episode is going to be two quite mediocre films, in my opinion. One of them is a huge hit, but just, for lack of a better word, all I can think of is mediocre.
0: Uh, I'm just thinking, have the alcohol ready, and then we will be sending up an SOS
1: by the end of the episode. For my co host, Chad Smart, you can find him on Twitter at Chad Smart. My name is Mike DeKalb. I'm also on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. You can also find me at the, on Out of Touchstone. I'm at Out of Touchstone. If you have an email for us, uh, you can email us at out of touchstone at gmail.com. We also have a website, out of touchstone.com. This is Out of Touchstone, and we are out of time. Go
0: I'm out, of time. out of touchstone is a honey nerds production for more information visit outoftouchstone.com like and subscribe on itunes podbean or wherever you find your podcasts thanks for listening so you're cool i'm cool we're cool thank you Goodbye.